Welcome to episode 78 of No Guitar Is Safe, the podcast where players plug in. Today, we're going to plug in with the astounding Tosin Abasi. And today's show is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better. All right, let's fire up the jolly copter and head across town to Tosin's house. What's up, everybody? Jude Gold here. I am so excited to be with Tosin Abasia. I tell you, if there is one place where Prague, Shred, Gent, Neoclassical all meet, it's in this guy's fingertips. Animals is leaders. He's probably the leader of that. Of course, he has Javier Reyes on guitar with him in that band, but man, that's him. It's a trio. We're listening to Tempting Time by Animals as Leaders right now from the first album. Self-titled album, Animals as Leaders. No need for bass, because Tosin and Javier play extended range guitars. They do have another album in the works coming up. I'm so psyched to be hanging out here with Tosin. We're going to get into all kinds of stuff. Everything from guitar techniques, which he's very generous with about showing you, and I love that about Tosin, to what it's like sharing a tour bus with Ingve Malmsteen, Nuno Betancourt, Zach Wilde, Steve I and a bunch of other nuts for 30 shows across the country and Asia. There's a lot to get into, man. Tosin, thanks for meeting today. I really appreciate it. How are you? Good, man. Good to be here. Quick shout out to Zoom recorders because we're recording with the Zoom and they hook us up. All right, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tosin Abasium. Here's your tuner, man. Is that your latest exercise there? What I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> it's a thing I've been messing around with for a while. It's yeah. like uh, so I call it selective picking. It's you if you want to do um, a group of notes, you can divide them between your left and right hand. So, like for a group of three, I would hammer on the first note from nowhere, and then it, um, I would complete. So, a group of three would be one, two, three. So two right. and three is the pick, one is the... That would be like the fifth string on a regular guitar. Yes, fifth string, yeah. seventh fret, you're hammering on from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And then... So triplets? Yeah, yeah. It, it encourages string skipping and intervallic phrases because you're not you're not really skipping with your pick, so it's a lot easier to jump around with your left hand. And it has like a... This has a cool timbre to it, you know? 
Maybe you could show the camera that little exercise you were doing. Okay. Uh, the basic you know, mechanics is a hammer on from nowhere, and then you pick the amount of notes you want. So if I did three, it'd be one, two, three, one, two, three. So octaves. And you know, plugging it into shapes like a minor seventh arpeggio. Or. So you can see I'm kind of selectively picking notes and hammering on others. Beautiful. And what was that sort Thanks. of study, that etude you were playing with it? Ah, uh, so I was I going. Asked you about it. Going from E minor seven. To a E minor major seven. Ah. Then you can start doing things where you kind of. Where I'm kind of, you know, hammering on these like uh, augmented triads and stuff like that. So hey, it's just so beautiful. There's so much, so much harmony in it. Mm. You know, the, the closest I ever got something. I came up with this thing where you just like slapping and hammering. You get the triplets, or you get the different notes. Got to keep the time in mind. One, two. Yeah. So I totally feel what you're doing with that, which is next level by, you're doing it with pick notes in there, which is totally asking yeah. for trouble. <laughs> but no, it's cool because when you slap, you're getting the the overtone. So oh, yeah, you it can sounds like more harmony lines. in there. Maybe with a bridge picker, I don't know. So how are you doing? It's just it's like if you if you took an octave, you go, I can't believe I'm showing toes in something. Huh. All right, this will probably be the only thing, so I'll, I'll milk this moment. So meathead. I'm, I'm hammering on from nowhere at the uh -huh. seventh fret of the fifth string, uh -huh. and then get the harmonic 12 frets higher by slapping it. And then your third note is the octave. And then the next thing is hammering on the octave, and then hammering the harmonic. But the trick is, you can do it in Four, you could do it in 16th notes. But that's very predictable. If you do it in triplets. Okay, you got a four over three sound. Yeah, so you get. And then, then if you start moving the fingers around. Very so cool. you see how similar it is to the thing you're doing mm -hmm. like in rhythm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though what you're doing, I think is much more difficult technically. <laughs> uh, it's just whatever learning curve you overcame to do that is I just overcame this learning curve. Oh, yeah. You know I, what I mean? Anything I, that disrupts your normal mechanics of playing feels slightly impossible at first. I love your Instagram. It's funny. I was looking at it today and it's kind of sporadic like you got every two weeks or so or i've been like not really on the gram lately you know yeah but like the other day you put one like maybe i say the other day it was a couple months ago it was like man i was up all night doing this thing i think i got it and you played it for the camera uh-huh and i just love that obsession that you still have at your young age of 35 <laughs> you're still staying up all night doing <laughs> it happens especially if, you know Take a big enough bong hit, you know. Is that what it was? That sounds. Yeah, yeah. 
It's like um, creating an ar arpeggio sequence. I really like um, modes of melodic minor. So this is... That's kind of... Uh, then if you go down a major third you know that whole symmetrical sound you know so beautiful and fluid i mean there's so much classical in your playing too i really think you know in the best possible way yeah like uh modern just the the, the way that you approach the instrument you can be so brutal <laughs> but you also have like this flow that's that i really appreciate and the harmony you know it's probably there's classical harmony in it and then the flow is classical is oftentimes um a string of even note values like so you Especially Baroque classical music, it's always like this sort of eighth note thing or sixteenth note. Especially arpeggio studies, it's rarely syncopated, you know. Um, so I guess it like that type of phrasing. If you inject a bit of like some of that harmony, you, you get that sound. But I've learned a bit of classical, and I, I think if you're a metalhead, classical there's like this nice like overlap between a lot of um, sort of Baroque classical stuff and metal harmony. So it kind of and then if you're an Ingve fan, obviously he he bridged that gap early on. Yeah. yeah, but even when you're you're incorporating the economy, sort of picking those sweeps in there, you've got it. You've like a, the way that a true dedicated classical musician would. You've got you've worked out the rhythm so it's really smooth. I mean, I know how difficult it is to mm. mix up alternating picking and sweeping in there, and keep it so so even sounding. <laughs> commend you for is like I've always had the most insane octave envy of a grand piano because mm. they can drop down and get that <clears throat> you know and then and you have really developed the eight string like as much or more than any player I can think of and that's really like like right now even with a clean tone just being able to drop down on your uh, you got your Abasi custom <laughs> guitar here Abasi eight yeah and, and yeah uh, it, that really adds a lot too, being able to have that range. Yeah, I think you, you know your reference to the piano is like the perfect one because guitar players like wait the guitar is a mid range instrument, mid range instrument that has six strings, and it's like yeah, but if you compose music like especially on an instrument like the piano, you would it'd be an interesting 
choice to limit yourself to just one octave of the piano or you know the available or to cut off everything below like middle c you know so it's kind of like i get like in the full context of composition instruments have their pocket but um i guess i'm just greedy when it comes to range and i like being able to play bass and you know especially if you're in voice leading or doing counterpoint or it's nice to have it all on one neck and that that was my whole thing you know this might be a good time also for you to show us your Abasi guitar. You're holding one of the main ones, probably one of your favorite ones, because yeah. you've, you've chosen it. It's your new line of guitars. You're, you literally are sold out with, you stop taking orders. Mm -hmm. A good problem to have of not being able to meet the demand. Yep. Yeah, show us what's going on with the Abasi guitar. This is so sick. All right, so this is one of the first Abasi guitars. This was a NAM build that, um, wasn't quite ready for Nam, but directly after it, we, we finished it up. Um, it is a ash body with a flame maple top. And I kind of like the uniform look between the, the two woods, even though they're different species, you kind of get this sort of subtle change in wood grain. Um, and we kind of blinged it out gold hardware. I think the gold really contrasts well with the Purple Heart fretboard. And then um, there's actually a wenge neck on this guy, two-piece wenge neck. So it's book matched down the middle here. Um, and the wenge heart, I mean, the purple and purple heart and wenge really work well together as well. It's a nice, like, deep color scheme. And I think that contrasts the, the sort of the brightness of the, of the maple. Um, the other thing is, you know, the design of this guitar was meant to tackle some of the design problems of the H-string. I mean... It's one thing to take a guitar and then add more strings to it, but you start to encounter certain design problems like uh, this, the range that is optimal for a guitar tuned below 440 starts to be a longer neck than a standard guitar tuned to that pitch. And so you end up in this position where you want to complement you know, the scale length for your lower strings without sacrificing the feel and the timbre of your treble strings. So doing multi-scale is kind of that middle ground where you literally have a compound scale you have at its shortest points you have 25 and a half inches and at its longest point you have 27 which results in fan frets yes that's what all this slanted fret business is about the some people there's an ergonomic component to it as well um the idea is that if your elbow is fixed as it would be when you're playing guitar um there's a natural fanning to the the travel of your hand it arcs as opposed to moving it laterally so the fanning is actually supposed to be more comfortable as you you know traverse the neck I really think it, it, it objectively validates itself as having the scale lengths that are necessary for the range that this one neck has, right? You know, I went with, uh, I'm not a trem guy because in the extended range, I mean, once you're playing eight strings, it's hard to get a floating bridge. So I've kind of defaulted out of trems, but I, I want to get into it. But this one, we've, we have individual saddles because I like that. I like that feel. I mean, arguably you're getting... Um, less crosstalk and more more of just like a straight to the body sort of relationship. There's no plate that the bridges go onto. They just drill directly into the body. This one doesn't have a tone knob. I kept it simple. Yeah, you know, I'm an ex-Ibanez guy. I like thin necks, so this one is really quite thin. I also always like the Ibanez S-series guitars, so I definitely wanted something that was thin. So we have a huge tummy cut here, and, you know, this beveling also is similar to something like you know, I don't know if it would be similar to an S-series, but it basically allows for your forearm to sit against the body of the guitar without encountering a, a right of 90 degree angle, you know? And it actually trims some of the depth off the body as well. So you can 
And then um, I have a lot of custom ergonomic guitars, and so the body shape is like referencing certain guitars I have where you are encouraged to utilize different seating positions. Like I practice in the classical position quite often, and so this cutaway allows for the guitar to sit comfortably in between the legs, but if you wanted to do that, you could do that too. And um, considering that I do like this centered position on the body of the guitar, um, the neck sits um, very deeply into the neck pocket. The 12th fret is actually here. Whoa. So this guitar would be quite a, maybe a couple of inches actually wider. So we've been able to condense the overall footprint of the guitar by setting the neck so deeply into the totally. body. Yeah, so that's, that's the Abbasi. And then the, the Fluence pickups, you know. Fluence um, is a really, cool, a really cool technology that is printed coils as opposed to mechanically wound coils. Um, and then also it is a uniform, I think 48 layers per pickup. So the pickup isn't voiced as a result of the amount of turns of coil. It's actually, they have their own mojo, but it allows you to voice the pickup the same way you dial in a tone on the amp, meaning you're choosing your resonant peak, you're choosing output, you're choosing you know all these characteristics without needing to wind multiple iterations of the same pickup, you know? So it really results in a result that results in a result. <laughs> you end up with a pickup that sounds like what you want because you can actually be referencing your favorite pickup at the same time and you're dialing in the tone on this and it's not going to a machine mechanically wounding, being like, oh, well, this one has, too much bass, so let's do a few less turns on the machine, and then you have to physically make another pickup, install it, listen to it, and be like, okay, well, the output's lower, but now that pick attack is, is a little bit more mellow than I want it to be. Well, you have to physically wind another pickup, and you try to, you, you know, this is different. There's a uniform actual physical construction, and then the way the pickup is voiced takes place um, by basically talking to the fluence, you know. It's it's like, you know, I'm not a technical guy, but I've I've definitely, you know, done a fair share of like trying to figure out what makes the fluence so good it, it you know musical terms it really results in a pickup that um is almost the equivalent of like a like a 4k screen or 4k 4k footage versus you know right you know it like it's it's the image you're used to but there's more detail right and all of this is super guitar friendly stuff it's not like it sounds sterile or sounds it's like it's got the purr it's like greg cock has a telecaster set that sounds like a telecaster from heaven you yeah, know yeah, but he played them on this podcast okay so just listen to that because that does a better job yeah, you, of well, a, no you can it's like different genres it totally works and Mm -hmm. No matter what. Style. I mean, I reference, I reference his uh, Telecaster sound for my my single coil sound. Yeah, you know? you're running through your Morgan amp right now, which is of course running at it's like a ferrari in <laughs> neutral basically compared to what it could do cranked yeah. up but. you've heard josh smith's uh amp as well morgan stuff is you know i realized that um he does a really good job because he knows that the quality components really contribute to the feel and the sound of an amp so you know the transformer in that thing alone you know it's pretty pricey but you, you've got a you've got a you can't skimp on certain things in an amplifier and still get the same result and he this one is a single channel clean amp. I mean, if you drive it, if you turn it all the way up, you will get some breakup, but it's, it's really just like this glorious clean tone with a ton of transparency and a ton of like response. That's why I can use it for animals as leader stuff. It like, 
is incredibly attacky. You know, a lot of country yeah. guys are using this stuff because they need that bluegrass, like, rapid fire, you know, that whole right. thing. How are you getting your grind through that? Oh, okay. Uh, I've got quite a few pedals. Yeah, you do. I've been using the Friedman BE pedal. Mm. It's basically a pedal version of their um, the Friedman uh, Harry Brown Eye. <laughs> or I guess the BE would be the Brown Eye. So, um, right. him and his names. Let's see what we got. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's like my main rhythm tone. God, it's so sizzling, man. It's got it's just yeah, it's got that awesome fry frying bacon sound. Yeah, yeah, and it it's super the low end, super tight. It has a feature called tight, and it's like a really cool. It almost takes the width of your bass frequency and it starts to narrow it, and it almost seems to give you that palm mute compression, but like on tap. So if you want the amp to really suck up and like kind of just. Gent, right? So that's cool. And then uh, I have some random stuff switched in and out of this right now. Um, I I like this Carl Martin. Yeah. So that's the Carl Martin plexitone, and that's, I guess, you know, their attempt at a Marshall style distortion. And it's got great features because it's almost like um, there's a boost for dB. So say you want to go into a solo in the same pedal, you have like an instant way of boosting the output. But then you have a you have a drive pedal. So there's two drive settings. So you can treat it as like a crunch and then like a like a high gain thing. So they really did a great job of like a three channel amp in a box assuming that you have the clean channel already plugged into you know then the other pedal i have is this rev pedal so like right now you caught my pedal board in a state of like um mid operation i'm swapping stuff in you know aren't they always that way (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyone with a big pedal board hopefully you've got the means to just try out yeah you've got like the largest size pedal train board looks like and then you've got everything running into the carl martin octa switch mm-hmm. so you're not going through all those pedals only you're just calling them in and out yeah Which because is, i'm yeah. used to the almost preset approach yeah so I, I need to be able to go from a clean tone with compression and reverb delay to a distortion with a noise gate and then a yeah. lead tone that has reverb and delay but is a totally yeah. different drive than my rhythm so i need to combine all those through a loop switcher just so i'm not tap dancing on the on the board. Now I wanted to ask you, right as I was setting up the mic, and I think you might have popped this one up on your Instagram too, you're playing the most beautiful piece with your new toy, which hasn't even made it onto your pedal board yet, but I have a feeling it will. Mm-hmm. The H9 from Eventide. Yeah. What was that thing you were playing, man? I just um, love it. <laughs> Let me see if I can... Uh... That was, did you hear that, folks? That was his pick. That sounded like a poker chip. Yeah. What, are, what are you playing? Is that a... This is a signature Dunlop pick. It's their prime tone. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think it's an attempt at the... Do you remember like the red bear and like these like... Yeah, yeah. Material, these beveled edges and it's kind of like your pick is like 
fourteen dollars per pick or something. At least. Yeah, yeah I think some of those are even more yeah, expensive. Like twenty five bucks for a red bear. Yeah, yeah, I think Guthrie's I don't want to misquote, misquote the price, but yeah, yeah. They're, they're up there. So I was like, it's just going through the presets. You know when you get a new multi effects process and you're like, what does this do? And you go step by step through each preset. Yeah. And like, you know, you play based off of the effect that comes out. So this one has like what? I don't know how many actual repeats there are <laughs> in there. It's hard to count. It's so yeah. fast. But I started to see like what, what, what kind of like phrase I can make if I'm committed to the fact that every note I play repeats this many times. Um, there is some overlap, but it was kind of like a... So, I mean, I think without the effect, it would be significantly less interesting. But uh. It's beautiful. Well, I love it when you go in those kind of directions, too. Like on, I mean, I would almost categorize Odessa as kind of in that similar vein. Yeah. Like, how did you record the beginning of Odessa? Let's listen to a little bit of that. We uh, recorded a single chord and then rhythmically chopped it up to create the stutter, the syncopated. Our drummer, Naveen Kapwaz, at the time had was producing the album and there might have been a rhythmic delay that he was using. It's like um, as if the trail goes through an evolution, right? So there's like a stutter, but then there's also like um, a reverse moment and then there's kind of, do you know what I mean? So we just kind of like, I think it was in Ableton Live, or I forget what he was using. So I had the progression and um, we knew we just wanted to do this sort of 8-bit groovy thing. You know what I mean? And that's kind of where that came from. And I think um, sometimes I hit these creative walls. Like I love the sound of the guitar, but sometimes throwing something like the effect, the stutter delay that I just use, it just like changes the sound of guitar enough to where you're, you're just re-inspired not necessarily by the content of what you're playing, but by the actual sound of it. And so now you're chasing this other result based off of the sound versus like the fact that you're playing an E9 chord. Because the, yeah. the progression that I was forced to make with that is not as complex as I would probably operate if I was like, well, this is just a chord progression. I better put some cool intervals or whatever in here. This thing, because the point is the stutter effect, it's like now like I need direct harmony and I need I need it to be a bit simplified because it's now actually the focal point is the stuttering thing as opposed to the, the chord. Right. And, it, and little things in there sound so cool, like a, a harmonic or two thrown in the middle of the lick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially, and then the way you actually like, if you, um, if you do a long note, or you get this kick drum sort of thing. Short note. Or right, right. 
I know those H9, you can load them up differently. Is that like the fully loaded, you know what I mean? Like, aren't there different levels of uh, packages? Yeah, this is like the H9 Ultra or like, I don't know what they call it. It is full of effects, which apparently I've talked to some people and they've had to download stuff or... I think there's three tiers to the H9, yeah. and luckily I got the one that's loaded with their, yeah. I guess, the quintessential e- even tied Leather seats. Yeah, yeah. Adaptive yeah. cruise control. All of the above. <laughs> Self-driving at this point. Yeah, that's badass. Yeah, I love it. I mean, the first time that I hung out with you was when you guys were in, you guys were all living together, I think, oh, in yeah. North Hollywood, and uh-huh. you guys were running, you and Javier had like a... Axe effects going straight into like Mackie PA speakers. <laughs> Mackie powered wedges. So you kind of came from the whole digital side and now you're going more, you come, a lot of people go the other direction, you know? Yeah, there's because there's more than one reason to do that. Like, so you're here interviewing me and you brought a combo amp, but you know, there's reasons why you can't bring your favorite amp. It's just, you don't want to walk through Koreatown with a freaking hundred pound tube amp you know what i mean plus we wouldn't really be cranking it up here you know right so then you're (laughs) right like it only shines in like you know these live contexts where it can really be pushed so the digital stuff is actually like guitar players have always been religiously married to tube amplifiers for good reason and then the digital claims of replicating that have always fallen short and i think now processors are strong enough to where you literally could blindfold the average guitar player play him a mix and ask him to determine which one is the like, you know, digital version and which one is the real amp. And I'd bet a guitar that most guys at this point don't even, they can't tell. I would agree with you in a recorded, like when you're hearing a mix of a tune in a room, it gets trickier because Mm -hmm. if you're running zeros and ones, well, what do you run them through? Running them through stage wedges or like any of your monitors? Like I see your point though. Yeah. If you're out in the audience and there's a good front of house engineer, doing a good job i think it can be harder and harder to tell if that player up there is running through an axe effects or a or, or a the, katana yeah and i, I think or a tube amp. and i think you nailed it like the the context matters because if you're in the room say you're in a small club and a guy has like a mesa boogie mark 5 or something and it's screaming or he has a jcm 800 it's like a fractal through a full range pa speaker just doesn't have the same in the room presence but if you're in a large venue and everything you're hearing is a result of inputs to a board that have been mixed then it's not a matter of a resonant speaker enclosure that you're in proximity to that is four 12 inch v30s through birch you know like it's actually now just a signal and the digital stuff is actually at the point where it literally I mean, look, I've spent 10 years playing this stuff and I'm, I'm choosing to play the analog gear when I have the luxury, but a majority of my year I'm playing through the fractal. Because if we have to go to a live session for Dunlop and record us, it's like, or if I have to fly to, to teach or if I have to fly to do clinics or if I'm, you know, there's a range of reasons. Honestly, when we recorded our album, it was all fractal as well. And we actually had the opportunity to record a range of amazing amplifiers. And we found that the effort to um, engineer the guitar sessions with consistency and the diversity of tones we needed, if we were paying for the room and we were paying for all those engineering sessions, the net result actually wasn't even like distinguishably better than like actually having these files of presets that we could recall that were perfectly the same. There's no like tube degradation or a need to bias the amp or the mic moved a little bit or what preamp did that mic go into? Was it RE16 combined with the Royer 121? Like, I mean, it's just like... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you just got it saved. Yeah. I must admit, I'm really impressed with my floorboard AX8. Dude, I have multiple, and I've been. I mean, I was just at John Bertucci's camp, and Guthrie was using one, and it sounded like Guthrie. It was just like. And the, he's a guy who would fly with his pedal board yeah, and a lunchbox amp. Yeah, and would play a hand-wired amp. And here's the thing. We all still, like, I think any player who's connected to his instrument knows that it seems that a high-quality tube amp does the, the best job of, like, representing your playing as far as response, articulation. But that is starting to feel like a luxury, especially when I can get the tones dialed in exactly the way that I need. I mean, I can have the tones from the album stored do you know what I mean? Yeah. In a device, and it's in, it's portable. It it like, I don't think convenience is the only argument for it, but I think the musical result is so good now that it's like, I'll play the fractal, you know? Right. I remember talking to Pliny on this podcast, and um, he was talking about how you were turning him on to the Morgan Amps on tour when you guys were touring together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you were to go on tour tomorrow on a high budget tour where you know you had multiple techs and the equipment truck and everything to drive everything you never had to touch any gear what would you bring for your ideal setup it would be what you see here it's like um i really like the clean amp as a pedal platform and then having different flavors of my drives come from high-end you know pedals that's kind of my i'm really doing it but i i do think that a high gain amplifier because the morgan is actually in my opinion just a really high quality tube clean head single channel yeah but um i really like bogner stuff i think fortin's doing great stuff i think the freedmans are great so i would do a dual amp setup the aby switch where um i'd run this clean rig as is and then i'd have like something that was kind of only good at high gain stuff for when i just wanted to be a meathead about it because there's a certain there's a certain sort of um when an amp is made to break up you know preamp distortion yeah. versus you know master channel distortion you, you get different dynamics you know i'm total geek about that stuff yeah yeah so you know the, the difference between like diming yeah. a, a master output yeah, versus been, i mean i've been gigging with a power station from fryette so i can crank the amp up all the way and then it's just kind of a preamp and i can add effects to the total crank like i'm cranking up a dr z ems one channel no effects loop so turn that shit up similar because those yeah. dr z's like spit out freak like the pick attack on those things is like yeah, it's jackhammer really, it's really clear uh, how did you speak? I like another interesting sound on cognitive contortions of Madness of Many, that mm. the melody at the beginning of that oh. is kind of trippy. That one is interesting. Um, so it's basically the hammer on from nowhere thing, but um, I'm doing groups of five on my right hand and hammering on these triads. Um, and then, Wait, what what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm hammering on a triad, descending okay. it, and then. Then I was starting on the fourth string. Yeah, we're on B, so it's a B minor triad, right? Uh, down to the fifth, down to the sixth string. And then when I get to the low E, I'm doing a group of five. Right? So, and that's like down stroke with the thumb, like. Down, down, up, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four. And then, so it's down, up, 
And then your your three fingers are doing the last three plucks of the five group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. So it's kind of like a progression that's like based off of those mechanics. And it's kind of interesting because um, you could do like. Now we got a little loop going here with the boomerang. Yeah. You could treat it as um, on the downbeat, like. Or. Like a triplet feel. That sort of thing. It's yeah. kind of what you were describing earlier where you take fours but force it over a triplet. So then I'm it just so places I'm feeling stuff. that. Whatever that was. <laughs> I'm feeling that. But I think I was even asking, isn't there like a melodic part at the beginning too? Just a weird... Uh, like the synthy thing? Yeah, it's like I was even... I mean, that was so cool. Uh, that was like way more than I even expected <laughs> you to t tell me about. So well, I the, thought the, there's like a little synthy, simple melody thing. It is. It's those notes. It's a... Uh, but it has portamento so it's like oh, okay i'm so, confused so is it played on a synthesizer or a guitar in midi yeah we, we just took the notes of my guitar and we wrote it into a synth and that particular synth patch is has portamento so dude you're a nut okay you're just a monster <laughs> like i you are exploring like every possible extreme of guitar you got the extreme octave range you have the extreme pedal palette with everything from loopers to multiple combinations to delays. You've got the digital world. You, you're a monster picker. And you're also a finger stylist. You also do a ton of like slap kind of stuff mm -hmm. and tap <laughs> kind of stuff. Can you show me like the tap thing on, how do you say it? Capo or capo? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is one of, your, one of your popular tunes. It's in drop D, this song. Well, there's one that's like that one. Yeah. That sort of thing. <laughs> it's amazing. That, that little looped high note is so catchy. It really is like a hook. <laughs> that was CAFO, or how do you say it? Kafo. I mean, it's not a word. CAFO? Yeah. I've seen it spelled different ways. CAFO. Does it stand for, what's the acronym? Come on. It actually stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. <laughs> okay, of course. How could I not get that? <laughs> that was off your debut. Yeah. Animals as Leaders. 
I love the live album too. Were you doing some kind of hardcore breakdown? Sounds like it's probably you and Javier, the drum solo on Inner Assassins. The end. Yeah. Well, let's listen to a little bit of that. Uh, who's playing drums on that? Is that Matt Garska? Yeah, that's Matt. monstrous he's so just... lively and you guys are doing some crazy percussive shit yeah that one is cool because um matt got into this whole thing of um shifting where you think the pulse of a phrase is um so he's when he's soloing he's oftentimes there might be something like a a pulse that you think is present and then he'll start playing on it as if it's um like triplet based or we just actually have to kind of ignore him at times and just listen to only the click because his phrasing diverts so far from what you think is happening that it's like you'll get lost if you actually try to track him. Oh, yeah. But I, I dig the um, inner assassin. What are you guys playing? What are we playing in there? It sounds very percussive. Oh, I'll show you what's happening. It's, it's actually the selective picking that, you know, the very beginning um, that we... So this one's an F, F sharp. I normally play in drop E, but on this riff, I'm treating it like a normal guitar. So if I like... That sort of thing. Yeah. So the same triple edit. That sort of thing. I can love it. Thanks. Speaking of your many great riffs, I love your kind of aggressive slap approach or slap pop, whatever. To mm. me, it's all just tosin, the way it all mixes together. But uh. a song like Physical Education is just so meaty and crushing and funky. It almost sounds like it's not 4-4, but it actually is. It is 4-4, but the syncopation, the phrase is long enough to where it's not like only four beats and then it loops, right. you know, it takes more measures, which is nice. That one I have to play on the Rick Toon guitar. That's the one that is folks on the cover of the September issue of Guitar Player Magazine featuring Tosin Abasi as he grabs that crazy guitar. I was expecting to see one of your guitars on there, the Abasi. The funny thing about that is uh, they um, were supposed to set up a photo shoot with me. I might have taken too long to get back to them. I don't know. But next thing I know, I see the cover. So <laughs> I never approved it. And they went with the Rick Tune, which is fine because it's a really cool, interesting build. But I was hoping that Abasi Guitars um, was going to be the guitar that made it onto the cover. So I was right. like, oh, I guess I'm on the cover with this guitar. That's cool. <laughs> but... Oh. um. On behalf of Guitar Player and the crazy print industry, I must apologize. Yeah, apparently that happens. 
And what is that piece of wood? It looks like it was found on a beach or part of a meteorite or something. It's like driftwood. Yeah. No. <laughs> what I think is really cool is that um, there's so much like machined technology on this. Like it's an aluminum neck and these individual saddles. Um, and then it's it's kind of juxtaposing this really raw, like almost tortured looking wood. And when you say it's an aluminum neck, it's not like a Travis Bean neck, which was shaped like a guitar neck, but happens to be made of aluminum. This is like a flat, it looks like a really hard tabletop or something <laughs> that has a piece of wood on the top with, for the fretboard, but the back of it might as well be part of like a pickup truck or something. I mean, it's like, it's yeah, hard. <laughs> look at that it's shit. It's very unconventional. It, like you said, it, it isn't shaped like a guitar neck. It's actually flat. I mean, Rick is, you know, his, his design approach is, is what I call pure design, where he sees, he sees a problem and the solution doesn't, isn't parametized by what other solutions look like. He's like, oh, well, you know, I think the bodies should be shaped like the negative space between your folded arm and your torso. So here we go. You know what I mean? Shaped like your armpit up there. Yeah. He's like, why do you need a horn? You know, like, why do you need... He has all these ideas about um, intersecting planes, so he has necks that are actually trapezoidal. Yeah, you know, as opposed to like a like yeah. a continuous curve. He's got like decided angles, and this kind of you know the Strandberg and Durnek was is referencing this because you know they were kind of working together at, at a point. Yeah, I mean, you let me play that guitar for a second before we uh, turn on the mics, and it's surprising that it seems so playable with just a flat, hard cornered neck. <laughs> oh man, that sounds awesome. Not actually, not actually in tune, but that's the physical thing. Hey I got you. What launched you into your slap pop direction? Like, I mean, you definitely have like that, whatever you call it, double thumping stuff, Victor Wooten. How did you launch into the direction of being so percussive with your right hand? It's actually um, my friend Evan Brewer, who is a phenomenal bass player, and he He's in this band Entheos, but at the time when I met him, we were in a band called Reflux, and he is from Nashville, and he had like studied with Reggie, and he was like shredding the double thump stuff and a lot of innovative tapping ideas, and so I'm like in a band with a guy who is like virtuoso level slap, but it wasn't your normal, it wasn't your dad's slap bass. It was like the density of notes he could get because he's utilizing down and up strokes. Um, he was even economy picking like with his thumb because when you're doing down and up strokes, you're basically alternate picking, right? You know, so you can start to incorporate. It just feels there. really weird though. Cause your nail is going up on the upstroke. It's like your nail hitting. It just feels very strange. It's a weird, yeah, it's a weird thing. There are uh, flamenco techniques that are similar. Oh yeah. Um, and it's just funny how like there isn't enough like cross pollination between guys playing guitar but they play spanish classical so then the metal heads don't know what those guys are doing or gypsy jazz guys or they're shredding but they hold the, their pick this way but then we don't we're not like you know having those conversations with them. it seems that maybe if you play in one genre you look to the people within your genre to learn how to do the stuff but sometimes it might be like check out some django reinhardt or check out you know 
So I, I've always been this sort of like, I play a stringed instrument. Sometimes it has six strings, sometimes it has eight strings. But um, that's why looking at a bass player was like, well, dude, you're doing that on a stringed instrument. Show me how to do it. It wasn't like, oh, well, you play bass and that's a bass technique. It was like, you have strings and frets. I have strings and frets. We both have hands. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you hold your pick while you're doing that stuff? Or? No, because I use all my fingers except yeah. for my pinky at that point. So yeah. Some people jam it up by their... You know, those little, those quirks, it's like, it's cool. People like kind of figure out their own methods of the whole yeah. technique grab bag thing, you know, but I, I'm kind of like, I just put my pick in my mouth. I know some dudes kind of, like you said, put it somewhere in their hand. Awesome. Well, thanks for breaking out of that crazy ass guitar. Mm -hmm. And if, if somebody wants to, you know, we touched on it for a second, but if somebody wants to get in a bossy guitar, what, what's going on with that right now? Bossy guitars is upgrading production. We're going to make a few changes like, uh, I think we'll have a more, as opposed, to being, as opposed to being just a custom shop where you literally can choose any species of wood under the planet, on the planet, we're gonna actually limit those specs a bit um, because it's just more of a sustainable like thing for us to deliver guitars on time and just know what we're working with. And this is all on the like production side, but it's just easier to, to meet lead times if we're not having to acquire Macassar Ebony for one fretboard. You know what I mean? At right. a time sort of thing. I have a feeling you're getting a, a real education here as you launch a guitar company. Yeah. <laughs> Manufacturing is a beast. And I've definitely spent the year like trial by fire, like learning exactly like what to expect. You know, what are industry standards? You know, if you're buying individual saddles from Korea, you know, is it commonplace for them to take two weeks to respond to an email? <laughs> or is it like... Yeah. Do you, you know, there's all these, there's all these things like, um, fulfillment's its own beat. So it's like, it's been really educational and I think I've learned the, the things to just kind of 2.0 the whole thing, you know? Right. Well, it's great that the demand is high though. That's key. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, I believe in the design and I believe that there's a, there's a, a niche for guitar players, especially extended range guys who want something made in the u.s and customizable you know on that level of that like it's like it's similar to like what john sir is doing what tom anderson is doing like they are brands that do a volume that make them larger than boutique but the quality that which that they're doing it sits on that boutique level they've just refined their production yeah to you know what i'm saying the scale is important you know they're so I, i've always liked that but it's always like these amazing six stringed instruments you know john and, and tom and they, they make seven strings now but i mean they have for a while but it's kind of like what if you want an eight string headless guitar then you're kind of like you don't have that many options man you, you showed me a prs hollow body eight string yeah it's like semi hollow i guess you got one one f hole not both yeah Probably uh a solid this was neck. like an amazing gift from paul reed smith he um i don't know we just started talking and he kind of was like i want to build you a guitar and it's a funny thing working with him because like eventually you realize like wait i mean you should spec this guitar paul <laughs> you know what i mean like i can tell you what i like and what i but at the end of the day it, it, it he took the reins in a good way because it's like his kung fu is very good yeah the guy is a genius and um i've always really admired prs guitars from a, a few different angles they they've always been like that sort of Porsche like you know if I when I was a kid going into the music store there was all the guitars and then there's the PRS wall and you're like okay well there's the Rolex section do you know what I mean it's kind of yeah. like and I think as a brand 
And especially at the time that he came to prominence, um, I think a lot of this was a lot harder. There was like the internet wasn't a huge thing. You couldn't just instantly reach a bunch of, so there's really this organic appreciation for his yeah. builds that proliferated and it turned into this thing where, you know, and I, I really love the guitars that kind of started with one guy. And then because of how well they're done, they, they turn into larger companies. It's, it's different than like other companies that are just like right. a brand, you know, you can point to this sort of artisan. And so um, he's always had my respect for that. And I, from a design like perspective, I really like the lines. They're 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 beautiful instruments, you know. So. Absolutely. Should I grab that guy? If you wanna. Yeah, let's hear that sucker. I've always wanted a PRS hollow body of any kind, six string or whatever. And uh it's so funny. I, I'm excited that he made that because as you know, when I was at MI as the director of the guitar program, which some of you out there know I did for about, gosh, four years. I was thrilled to have you guys come in, Animals as Leaders, you and Javier, and I think it was Naveen on drums at that point. Mm -hmm. I also had PRS. I had Paul Smith, as people who work with him call him. I had Paul Smith, Paul Reed Smith, come in another time, and he loves talking to the crowd. One of the questions that I, I almost think it kind of, what's the word, wrangle, riled him a little bit? He's taking questions from the audience. He's walking around, he loves talking to a crowd. And some student says, Paul, when are you going to make a seven-string PRS or an eight-string PRS? And he's like, I don't think there's a market for it. Or so. He said, this is like six years ago. And here it is, man. He made an eight-string PRS. Yeah. That's, what, that's a testament to what you have done and others. I think you're right. And but, it's cool that he's open to like, you know, he's a, he's a guy who's kind of created trends in some ways. So... It's cool that he's also still responsive to what he sees going on, you know? Um, it's a cool effect. This thing is it's really cool. I knew I wanted kind of that Aldi Miola style uh, sort of beach burst sort of. Yeah, it's really pretty. Spectrum rainbow thing. And uh, I like semi-hollow instruments, you know. So it's kind of cool to have them as eight strings. It's cool, man. Paul made it happen. And this is like one of my prized possessions, actually. Killer, man. Yeah. So do you have time to maybe just give, what's, give us a 10 cent bio, man? Where'd you grow up? Now, your parents were immigrants or you're a first generation American? Yeah, my parents are from Nigeria and they immigrated to the U.S. I think in the like probably like late 70s, early 80s. What brought them here? The same thing that brings, you know, all people seeking a better life. I mean, Nigeria is the type of place that um, it doesn't have the same infrastructure and you could be a hardworking citizen, but you hit these barriers that are, uh, they're kind of institutional. There's right. things like government corruption and it's a, it's an interesting thing to want to work, but to have a system that actually like is, can be a barrier. So what did they do when they got here? My mom is a nurse and my dad worked for public transport in DC. So you grew up in the D.C. area? Mm-hmm. What part of town? Uh, uh, Columbia Heights, which is northwest D.C., and then when I was like eight or nine, we moved to the suburbs of Maryland, so like like the last stop on the subway. You know, it's uh, 
a suburb called Gaithersburg, Maryland. When did you grab a guitar for the first time? Uh, I was 12 years old. And I had a friend who was taking guitar lessons, and there was a guitar like sitting in his living room, and I like. I had played in the school orchestra. I played clarinet, so music wasn't like I knew how to read music on the clarinet. And but I was like, "Oh, guitar! Show me something!" And he showed me like Metallica one. You know, like yeah, that's not impossible to play when you're first starting. Yeah, it's not impossible, but it is the perfect amount of easy and hard because you're like, I can do this. But like not right now, but maybe like in a few hours I can do it. And I, I, I think I got hooked on that whole, the, the carrot dangling in front of the horse's face. Yeah. You know? like, and you start to like have these mini victories because you're like, dude, I can do a power chord. When like literally two weeks ago, your hand was like this useless claw. Now you can bar all six strings. It is nutty. It's nutty. And I think we forget, you know, I saw this guy on, on Facebook and I don't know, I don't remember his name, but he um, taught himself, he took a challenge this year to learn guitar left-handed. Like he's an established guitar player the other way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, anyone who thinks that it's not that hard, flip your guitar around and try to play anything. One note with your pick in the opposite hand and your fretting hand on switched to the other hand. Woo! Shockingly hard. Comically hard. Yeah. And... Uh, there's a type of hubris that comes with the like we've spent so many years getting basic mechanics that now we forgot the the actual amount of effort it took to get that and so if you're a teacher i think he did it because he was like trying to get into the headspace of like the beginner but with the perspective of already technically knowing how to play but like having his brain know what to do and his hands not listen because when you're teaching you know this you're like well do this do that do do this right and then intellectually the person's like okay right so strike the pick at the same time that I press the note. But that information in their brain yeah. doesn't translate into like movement for quite a bit. And it's the weirdest yeah. like, and I guess talent is like how, how short the gap is between <laughs> what your brain knows and what your body listens to, you know? Yeah, I'm just thinking about the time that uh, Carl Verheyen was on this show. Some of, us, some of the listeners have obviously heard that episode. And he was doing a session where they wanted him to sound like he had never played guitar before. And he was doing everything he could to play terribly. He couldn't do it. And they were like, no, that's too good. Finally, he just did that. He flipped it around. And he got Union Hollywood scale. He probably got like $600 to flip his guitar over and not like, and play like he couldn't play at all. It was for yeah. like Bill and, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or something. Okay. No, that's a really good example of how hard it is to undo, you know, like try to play offbeat, you know, like someone yeah. like you who's like, you're, you've got a great sense of rhythm, you have percussive techniques. It's like harder oh, yeah. than you think to undo, like, you know, it's like a weird thing. So you, you obviously dove deep into guitar pretty quickly because you're, yeah, you're still a young man. When did you end up at Atlanta Institute for Music? Or That was 2000... Like you were 18 or 19 or something? No, it was I mean, like 24, 25. What drove that? You'd probably obviously been in some bands and everything. and Yeah, so at that point I'd been touring in a band called Reflux. And we released an album on Prosthetic Records. I was an Ibanez artist. So I was like, you know, semi-professional guy. But I remember hearing like some like Alan Holdsworth and being like, I have zero idea what is going on here. Like, I don't know what chord quality that is. I don't know how he's getting away with these lines. 
because I know it's not just random chromatics, but I, I couldn't tell you what I'm hearing. And as a musician who I, at that, I was like, I know I want to play for the rest of my life. I didn't feel comfortable being like on the other side of that knowledge. I don't know. It just felt like, I felt like music, I should understand music. So why am I not understanding some of the stuff I'm hearing? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, I got to learn about music theory, you know? Because at that point I was in, playing by ear and then learning technique from videos like Paul Gilbert's videos and John Petrucci and, you know. So, yeah. but that was like, put your fingers here. But it wasn't like, oh, you're playing, you know, the harmonic minors. You're playing Phrygian dominant. You know, it wasn't, th some of that information's in those videos, but it didn't correlate to a larger picture. Right. So the music school that I went to was attractive because it's a one-year program. So I was like a gigging guy who didn't want to just be like out of the game for four years, stationary in one. And so I was like, oh, it's like university level music courses um, but a condensed curriculum. I don't have to study history or math to get some sort of useless, like I didn't care about the credential. Right. I cared about getting better at guitar. So it's almost like a trade school for right. guitar. They've expanded now. I think they're a degree program, but when I went, it was more of like an MI sort yeah. of thing where it's like, they must love you now. They, uh, do you ever bring you back and stuff for stuff? I've done a lot of clinics there. We had a scholarship going for a while where we kind of had a, like a internet, it was merit based and I would judge the, you know, the participants and someone would get a year of, you know, tuition to that school. Badass. Yeah. And then, so how did you end up forming animals as leaders? And, uh, I know it started off as, you know, people were wanting you to do a solo album. Mm -hmm. How did you meet Javier Reyes, the other guitarist and form that partnership? Okay. So animals as leaders was basically, um, I was in music school and I had no band, but, the owner of prosthetic records ej he i think he was a fan of the shrapnel records era of guitar stuff and he was just like well dude you should just do a solo guitar thing man like i'll put it out so i was like that's when i was like oh, i don't know if i could carry the whole album with just my guitar playing i was always a band guy but after going to music school and kind of like diving deeper I felt like, oh, wait, I can do this. So he was down to put out animal, Animals as Leaders. And the reason it's Animals as Leaders as opposed to like the Tosin Abasi experience is I was always into bands like Dream Theater and then like Liquid Tension Experiment. And like, I liked, I mean, I feel like John Petrucci is a pretty perfect example of the model guitar player that I wanted to be where he's super versatile. He's got chops, but he's musical. He has a distinct sound. He writes songs in a band, so he has a supportive role, but he also could do the solo thing. He, you know, he's kind of a guitar god, but also like he's in a band that's iconic. I, I just felt that that was super awesome. And Liquid Tension was like, this is compelling, heavy, complex music, but there's no vocals, you know? So I like that. But I was also into electronic music, which is instrumental. And I was into bands like Jaga Jazzis and cinematic orchestra and the bad plus tortoise so then i was like let me just make this less about like the toast and bossy experience and like have fixed band members who compose their perfect music but at the time i was the only member you know so right. moral of the story is um i ended up taking ej's offer to do the solo album called it animals as leaders worked with misha mansoor to really take the demos to the next level you From know periphery yeah yeah misha. misha was a game changer because i had i had a lot of these ideas but 
I think I work better with other people. I have I feel like I have a strong musical voice, but it was the kind of thing where where my idea ended, his would start. So we I think our the animals as leaders sound really crystallized when I got into Misha's studio and I'm like, dude, here's some riffs, and then he's like, all right, cool. So he programmed the drums. He's like, dude, this section should be shorter and you should put this here. And it, we really kind of worked together, you know, on that first album. Javier, I just knew because the first metal band I was in, he was the lead singer. Really? I didn't yes. He wasn't even playing guitar. And then I found out that he was a ph- phenomenal guitar player. Beyond being a phenomenal guitar player, it was like classical guitar and like he was into like all the shred stuff. And he had a Ibanez universe. And so the first seven string that I really like spent time with was Javier's because you know so he he kind of like yeah he's the reason that i like started getting into extended range you know right and then he's the reason also that i was like man i gotta learn some finger style stuff because he played we would always be playing these beautiful compositions alone you know on a nylon string guitar on his couch and it was just like bass melody chords it was everything at once i hear some uh that stuff on your songs that i assume must be some of those moments must be javier is there one you'd like to uh reference here that we could listen what's a good javier moment from that we could play right now uh if you play the song nafel there's a clean break in the middle of the song and it's like a clean guitar solo and it's all him you know and it's very indicative of his style very lyrical but chord melody vibes you know That's the perfect, I think that's like a perfect Javier like moment. That's awesome. Well, tell him I said what's up next time right I on. see him. <laughs> Love to get both of you on the show one day. That's very possible. And then speaking of Petrucci, John Petrucci, you just played at, and we're teaching at his camp. It, it's called the Guitar Universe Camp, or what's it called? John Petrucci's Guitar Universe, I think. Yeah, John Petrucci's Guitar Universe, a camp. I guess it must be in upstate New York or something, or? Yeah, um, Long Island. Long Glen Island, Co- there yeah. you go. Not upstate. Right, so, uh, probably not far from his house he's probably driving home every night knowing yep. him <laughs> i think he was pretty close yeah he's a he's perfect a true, setup. he's a family guy love that about him so how was that man that event is so cool because john john has like amazing fans the dream theater has such a legacy that he has fans that are like you know older than me and then he has fans that like literally are like 14 years old at the same event so wow and it's like it's people from Egypt. There's a guy from Egypt there. There was a guy from Saudi Arabia. There's like a dude from Norway. There's a dude from Brazil. There's so there's that. And then um, he's just a really great guy. So it was it was like it's very immersive. You spend time with you know all the instructors there. But it's like you know they say you shouldn't meet your heroes, but like you should meet John Petrucci. You know, Such a he's cool like dude. Grilling hamburgers for people and like he's giving away. He li- literally has classes where he <laughs> he makes a guitar tone. He has his actual stage rig on stage, and he's like, "Here's what I do to sound awesome," you know. And it's like he's also giving you really vital information that isn't like play this lick. It's more of like here's the arc of a solo. Like here's how you enter the solo. Here's how you crescendo. You know, these these things that like you really. It's like um, teach a man to fish sort of vibes, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the staff or the instructors that he invited are all, I mean, it's like this year it was myself, Jason Richardson. So he's got, you know, this like new school young talent. He's got Andy James, Tony McAlpine, who was a legend, Rusty Cooley, who like, 
honestly, I think the beginning of viral, insane guitar playing, Rusty Cooley is kind of like one of these dudes who's just like, is this sped up? Like, you're yeah. just wanting, you know? <laughs> he's in that, yeah. He's. And the, so but then he also got Guthrie Govin and he got Aldi Miola to come in and like, you know, last year he had Andy McKee who's like playing this beautiful like solo acoustic guitar stuff. So there's a lot of these camps popping up, but John's, I think it's like, man, this lineup is insane. And I just think that it's kind of the perfect one, you know? Amazing. Now you've done a lot of these all-star things recently. I'd love to ask you a couple about a couple of them. Yeah, you did the Joe Satriani's camp too. Yeah. Yeah, the G4 experience or something was it yeah. called? Yeah. Joe was amazing as a person. Oh, what a great Very guy. guru-like vibes, like warm, yeah. you know, and man, Joe can play. Yeah, he's a great guitar player, man, and, and a great rhythm player too. People, everyone knows him for his lead playing and his platinum instrumental albums, but mm-hmm. he grew up playing in bands. Yeah. He played and for Mick Jagger. Did he really? Yeah, he did a Japan tour with Mick Jagger as his lead guitar player right before surf, right before surfing with the alien came really? out. Yeah. Now Joe's has such a legacy and obviously he's got a history of teaching, but he also is like defined a lot of approaches to guitar. I mean, these guys who have kind of created the genre of instrumental rock guitar as like a valid, you know, like you said, platinum yeah. level. So there's that. And then, you know, I think he did a really good job with his camp too, because um, like I was honored to be there. He had, you know, Mike Keneally is a really cool player really great guy he had Guthrie Govan as well um so that that was dope um so yeah I've had really great experiences with this stuff um Generation Axe Steve Vai's big concert all-star many many major names on there who are you playing with on that tour that's uh Zach Wilde Nuno Betancourt myself Ingve Malmsteen and Steve Vai <laughs> first of all what was the hang like backstage the hang it's unfortunate that we didn't decide to do like a reality TV show. I know. It's these guys are the biggest personalities. <laughs> like larger than life. It's it's a very interesting thing um because you know we look at magazine covers and we look at like album covers and the whole thing is larger than life. Like these these guys are iconic. But like you could just be having breakfast with one of these people and you'd be like, yeah, you're like not the average dude. Like they're very charismatic. You know, Ingve is super intelligent, super opinionated. Zach is hilarious. It's Are you like, guys in the same hotel every night, like having breakfast together? Or? Yeah, we're on the same bus. Right. So I'm like, you know, Zach's like on the bunk above me and Steve's Holy like. Holy shit. No, that's, it was. That's real. close quarters. Yeah. I've like, I like lived with the guys. How many shows did you do? Well, we did a full U.S. tour that was probably like 30 shows. Damn. Was and it then, one bus with all of you? Yeah. There was a crew bus, but right. they had, you know, they had us on one bus. And then we did <laughs> Asia. So that was probably 14 shows across. Damn, I, I didn't realize it was so expensive. I mean, so extensive. Yeah, man. It's, it was like there. These guys. The other thing I realized is like Zach was on tour before Generation X and then like went on tour directly after Generation X and then went on like, you know, then he did Zach Sabbath instead of Black Label and then he's out with Ozzy and I'm like, these guys are nuts, dude. Two days ago, I got really lucky, seven in the morning flight, every once in a while I get bumped up first class home from my gig, Cleveland to LA and fucking Steve Lukather is on the plane under the seat, like two rows in front of me and we're buddies. He's been on this podcast. He's texting me all kinds of insane shit and he just made me think of him because yeah, he's just, just wrapping up his Toto tour and then immediately going out with Ringo. It like never stops for that, for these guys. Yeah, it's really impressive. I mean, Steve is the same way where it's like, he'll be scoring an orchestra 
but then also mixing his own album. Talking about Vi. Yeah. yeah. And then also making the arrangements for Generation X. When I say arrangements, I mean literally transcribing a five guitar version of you know highway star or yeah you know what i mean and then he's also at the rehearsals and then he's also i mean yeah vi was on here and he was talking about doing those arrangements right right when you <laughs> right when we did our interview he was wrapping that stuff up he killed it and you know he like actual parts and everything yeah in a way that like you know there is a very easy um way to fuck that up <laughs> you know like five guitar players playing a song that never was intended to be that many voices on the guitar. And how do we make this like a celebration of all these guys as opposed to like you're in guitar center and you wish, you know, so he, um, he's so dedicated and honestly, like this deep in his career, I started to marvel at like that. The fact that the inspiration was still there and he's still doing these world tours and he's still transcribed. He's got the energy of like an obsessed 20 year old. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you realize like, Look, as you know, someone who teaches, there's so many questions about, and some of them are about shortcuts. They're they're about like, how do I? Well, how much did that guy practice? I'll just do that. Or like, what scales do you run? It's like you get around some of these iconic guys, and you realize that there's something fundamental to them that is not. It's you can't really communicate that, and it doesn't have anything to do with the guitar. It's like a drive, a clarity of vision. Um, a degree of self-confidence like they're bold they believe in themselves they're not lazy they're like ceaselessly inspired it it, it starts to be like oh wow like you know i i the generation act thing started to become a lot about sounds my like interaction. someone else i know tosin i'm looking <laughs> at you buddy i have my moments you know <laughs> enough about all the musical stuff let's get back to the bus that shit sounds hilarious the most insane humor usually happens like in the front back lounge of the bus, one of those places. That's when people get loopy in the middle of the night. Mm. What was the funniest moment on that tour? Some just crazy, I don't know, what wild moment, anything that stands out that you'll I never mean, forget? I don't, I don't I, there's some unrepeatable, you know, these, I'll put it this way. These guys were touring in the heyday of like hair metal, arena, rock was doing oh, yeah, arena tours. stories that are... Yeah, I'm just like, what? <laughs> like that literally couldn't happen in 2018. Yeah, there'd yeah. be some hashtag movement. <laughs> it just yeah. be like, because like society is in a different place. I'm like, the, some of these stories, they're they're your classic groupie tales and your classic, you know, over the top party thing. We got everything from David Lee Roth to Ozzy Osbourne. Like between those yeah. two guys, you can fill in the blanks of some of the yeah. stories that are like. And you got hours on the road to tell stories. Yeah. I mean, in Nuno, you know, he's an interesting guy because I don't think he ever was going for a guitar hero, but he, he plays like one, but he's a songwriter. He was doing, you know, um, musical direction for Rihanna's world tours. So, and then he had that whole, you know, extreme had like pop success, you know, number one, like global hit stuff. And, and he's so, he's like this like super attractive guitar slinger dude who's writing like these ballads that people play at their weddings and stuff. Yeah. So Nuno is just like, he's got great stories, but it's cool. You know, they're all fathers now and they, they've lived the dream life that any like bachelor guitar yeah. player would ever think of and they they also have like come to really value like their families and their own lives you know like yeah you know zach sober ingve sober they you know they Is did anyone drinking on that bus that seems like a pretty sober bus no 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 one was really drinking because i don't really drink yeah. and steve doesn't really drink and zach drank a lot of like 
non-alcoholic beer you know just coffee and hot sauce that man drinks a lot of coffee it's real strong coffee and vi probably brought out a few bottles of hot sauce different varieties did he (laughs) he's got this insane hot sauce bar at his house like uh, 300 bottles really yeah yeah i didn't know that yeah no a lot of it was just i kind of listened to their war stories and they're like so what was it like on stage with all these fools? I mean, dude, I'm going to be real. Ingve's mountain of Marshall cabs and amplifiers. Like, I just had this 212 cab, and I was on Ingve's side of the stage. So your little Morgan is right next to Ingve Mountain? Yes, Ingve Mountain. And he dimed those Marshalls, man. And it was like, I think there'd be some nights that he wasn't in, in depending the on the room, right. he wasn't in the PA. Right. He has a very cool approach to where he... um. His main tone is dry, but he uses the reverb of the room. And so when he's sound checking, he's at full volume and he's he's he wants before he turn on the PA, he just wants to hear his notes flying around the room. That's his like center, you know? And it's like I'm not gonna say he hasn't changed his gear in a few decades, but he kind of is using the same stuff hey, that man. he would have used in like the early 80s you know i love that about him i mm-hmm. love his tone i love that it harkens back to blackmore's strat through a plexi kind of sound mm-hmm. it really sings you know mm-hmm. that vibrato oh my god cut it just cuts through yeah so being on stage with those guys you know i am not like i didn't tour with david lee roth or extreme or ozzy osbourne does they have a, st- a stage presence that you can't fake those guys are like running around and like i'm more of like a different approach so it was kind of like it's like do i play this game of like you know over the top stage presence or do i just like kind of be me so i was kind of always like Fuck, this yeah. is a lot these dudes are like intense you know no doubt man i have to ask you i wonder if steve Vai has asked you to take part in his he's going for the world record jamathon Big Mama Jamma Jamathon, I think he's calling it. It's going to yeah. be three days at Musicians Institute. It'll probably be online or something. Being, You could probably check it out September 28th through the 30th. I guess he's going for a 52-hour jam session world record for charity. Is what he going to be there for all the jamming? I can't imagine he'll be there the whole time, but he, it's going to be organized. I know that if you yeah. want to do it, I think you can purchase a slot and... and the money that you pay to be involved, of course, goes straight to charity. No, he emailed me about it, and I've agreed to do it, you know? Fuck yeah. Yeah, I think it's cool that he's got such a creative idea to raise some money, and the world record thing is pretty fun, too. It's hilarious. Yeah, so... He always has ideas, is what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah, he's... uh, Like I said, it it stopped... Like, I'm not going to say it's not about the guitar with Steve, but, like, he's... he's, That guy, like, um, he's just special beyond his musical talent. We'll say that much. Absolutely. I was gonna. I was invited to write about it and cover it. Unfortunately, I'll be out of town playing mm. myself that whole weekend. But and then so, man, you are expanding in every possible direction with this stringed instrument, as you say, and mm. all the cross pollen pollinization. Like, what? What's the big? Where do you see yourself really expanding to musically? Like twenty years from now, uh, I mean, you'll always be a stringed instrument player, a guitar player and then some and a user of great effects and timbres Mm -hmm. but just the way that you threw yourself into school at age 25 when you clearly could have just kept going as a pro musician is there anything you could see yourself throwing yourself into coming up that is a really good question i can't answer for 20 years 
I feel like that would be more of an answer of like basic human pursuits, like producing offspring, you know? Um, but right. It's a very scientific way of saying having a family. I think (laughs) (laughs) I like your scientific side. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, you know, good way of distancing yourself from feelings. You just intellectualize (laughs) everything. Um, no, but, um, I think, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's like a question I would ask you, like anyone who's been playing for multiple decades, who for a lot of time was very focused on like identifiable pursuits. What happens when you a achieve some of those or B you have a sound. And so you don't want to just be saying the same thing or C you're less motivated by things that used to motivate you. So then you're like, so I'm in this space where I've like been obsessed with, uh, I've been obsessed with sounding original and I've been obsessed with the techniques that will allow me to sound that way. And I've been obsessed with making an an impact in guitar. And I feel like, you know, I've kind of done a lot of those things. So now I'm like, what is next? And it's like, man, you know, guys like Josh Smith, I listen to and I'm like, do I love the blues? You know, (laughs) I'm like, wait, like, or (laughs) gospel guitar players, R&B guitar. I'm like, it's just like, all of a sudden I'm so attracted to this like you know whole different vocabulary of guitar playing that I used to not even have a, a, a focus on so the, the short answer would probably be like expanding my vocabulary through collaborating with artists that I really like and then collaborating as a songwriter both maybe with like vocalists or like electronic producers where it's like I've said a lot alone on the guitar like w- what if I share this creative endeavor with other people like i mean like cool like who knows what it sounds like you know and what if someone like a rihanna with nuno if someone like a lady gaga or someone was like i want you to be my md and would you ever think about doing something like that no i'm really weird where i kind of have to i've done some gig stuff like that i think there are better guitar players to like do sessions than me like they're just really versatile and they like are able to i'm just like i just kind of sound the way i sound and my passion for it is because I'm always expressing something I'm a, like resonating with. So you probably won't see me on stage with something that I don't absolutely love playing. I'd rather just not do it, I think. I feel you, man. <laughs> well, thanks for meeting today, man. I really appreciate it. In a it. bit of struggle, I have to apologize for the, what are you the rescheduling. About? No, man, not at all. This is Tosin Tuesday. I have my own day. I was, you know, I kept the whole day. I was like, this is, I'm so excited. And it was just way even more inspiring than I even could have imagined. So I really appreciate you doing it. Keep it alive till you're 95. At least. At least. What what Jude's not telling you about Tosin Tuesday is it's actually Taco Tuesday. But then today he's just telling me it's Tosin Tuesday. Well, you still got a few hours to make those tacos, man. I hope I'm not keeping you from your favorite food truck. I'm getting tacos. It's late here. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Oh, the time is safe.